All right, as we get started here, um, it's been four months since the new year, and I'd like to see uh, some hands, those of you that thought about making new habits, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, the first week of the new year, any, anyone? This year, I'm going to. Anyone? Good, good. This year, I'm not going to. Something. Okay, how's it going? How's it going with that? This was going to be the year I was going to eat no sugar. I made it once for it's like 21 days. I was pretty proud of myself. And then New Year's Eve, it was turned into, I'm going to eat less sugar right after this dessert. We all want to break bad habits, and we all want to build good habits. Um... I like this quote by Warren Buffett. The chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. I thought that was profound. And as I was looking through Luke and praying and reading and reading and praying, the one thing that I could see that tied the whole book of Luke together, excuse me, the whole chapter of Luke together, is habits. And so we're going to look at spiritual habits today. Are all of our spiritual habits good? Are any of them bad? What is the fruit of them? And so as we uh, get into Luke 14 and open the Word, let's just have a quick prayer again. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we need You. I need You. Uh, We just come to You and acknowledge our, our inadequacies. But thank You, God, that You are enough and that You are more than enough. God helps to look at our habits today. Reveal any that... uh, need to be ripped out by the roots or transplanted so that it would be to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Luke 14. One Sabbath, Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, and he was being carefully watched. Does that sound like a nice Sabbath meal? You ever been carefully watched? There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, So, I don't know the most anxious meal you've ever eaten, uh, but as I read that and I was like, carefully watched, that doesn't sound like a nice environment for digestion, right? You ever had a meal and you were just so nervous you couldn't eat? Um, I couldn't help but think about um, when I was about done with studying to become a youth pastor and there was this girl and we'd been dating for like two years and... Through a lot of prayer and two weeks off, I knew that it was meant to be. And so I had to ask her dad for permission to marry her. And so it was 6.30 in the morning, you know, surgeon's schedule, and there we were alone, just the two of us, at this pretty good-sized breakfast table. And I'm on this corner, and he's right there, and I'm just like... eating my blueberry morning cereal and just thinking this does not look appetizing at all. And I'm just nervous and I, my stomach's in knots and my mother-in-law-to-be had set up our little breakfast meeting and I'm just like... And he's like... Oh. And so I think of, of Jesus at this meal and they're not, they didn't invite him over to have a happy Sabbath. They invited him over to trap him and to arrest him, have him arrested. 
He was scrutinized closely. So here he was at the Pharisee's house. The experts, the Pharisees and the experts in the law were there. Luke 14.3. It is, is it lawful, Jesus says? Is it lawful? He knows what they're thinking. He knows they're trying to trap him and trick him and get him arrested. He goes anyway. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He just cuts to the chase. I love Jesus. No beating around the bush. No uh, past the veginase. Just bam. And they, verse 4, but they remain silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. So I just want to look at the Sabbath habits. So we're looking at spiritual uh, habits for life. What were the Sabbath habits of these Pharisees and teachers of the law? Um, looking at this and comparing mankind, mankind with Jesus. So according to this first section, mankind, our spiritual habits, our religious habits, our Sabbath habits, we can tend to be critical for good reasons, because I'm right and you're wrong. When we are critical with others, we tend to want to trap them. We tend to want to bind them. And look at Jesus. He was there. He was in the same place on the same Sabbath, believing in the same God, Father, to Jesus. And yet Jesus is there forgiving and making right instead of making wrong. Jesus is there not to trap anyone, but to set people free. Jesus isn't there to get anyone arrested. He's there to let this man go from what bound him, what was binding him, disease and suffering. So I ask you this morning, as we get in this first section, how do others experience your faith? Do they feel wrong after having an interaction with you? Or do they feel blessed and loved and healed? Every day we get to choose, are we going to have habits of life? Are we going to have habits, spiritual habits that lift others up? Or habits that tear others down? All right, section two, verses 15 to 20, excuse me, 7 to 14. Lesson two, humility, humble habits. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will have to say, friend, come up here. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Uh, I've read that many times, and I've been like, what is he talking about? But I think each day we make many choices to either honor ourselves or to act in humility. Verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, 
or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So in comparing what we do, the fallen creation, comparing with what Jesus does, what did and he bids us to do, let's compare. So we like others, we like those who like us, right? Who doesn't like someone who likes you? That's easy. Jesus even says the sinners and tax collectors do that. Well, we also like those who are like us. And we invite those who invite us back. I want you to think about this. This is something for me to chew on all week. Are you, are, am I, are we really being generous when we buy lunch for someone who next week or next time you go out together, they're going to buy you lunch? Is that really generosity? When I do it, I feel generous. Well, don't mention it. Just Next time? <laughs> right? That, you're just buying each other lunch. That's not generosity. That's paying each other back. But Jesus says, choose the lowest place so that you can be moved up. Don't choose the higher place. You'll have to be demoted and shamed. And I think this is spiritually too, not just Jesus doesn't care where you sit at a banquet. He's talking about spiritual things. Spiritually, do we come to him and are we like, well, remember last week what I love paradise? That was pretty cool, wasn't it, God? Right? We come to him in, in humility, not in pride. Be generous to those who can never repay you. That's hard to do. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. I think the main lesson from the second section, as I thought about it all week and prayed over it, is exactly that. Bless and give to those who can't repay you. And you'll have the greater reward. You know, in there he mentions... um, you know, don't invite your rich neighbor to your thing because then they're going to get you back. And I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And Jesus is saying, that's a little reward. But if you want a great reward, bless and give, befriend, spend time with those who will never be able to pay you back. Be generous to those who cannot ever repay you. And he says, and I will give you a greater reward. Because it's right. Because he bids us to. And not because we're getting a greater reward. Alright, section three. Uh, Verses 15 to 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many, uh, circled many. If you have your Bible, feel free to circle many guests because I think Jesus has invited many people, all who ever lived and will live. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. I had a coach in high school who had something to say about excuses. I can't very tell it too much about it here. 
But it had something to do with like everyone has two armpits and they don't smell good. That's what he thought of excuses. So here he is. Here comes the excuses of those who were first invited. I have just bought a field. Sorry. Got to go and check it out. Verse 19. I've just bought five yoke of oxen. Everyone's always coming up with that excuse. (laughs) I'm on my way to test them out. Wouldn't that be ten oxen? Still another said, I just got married. Sorry, I can't come. So the servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly. Go quickly into the streets, the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Are you hearing a theme here in Luke 14? What is on the heart of God and who is on the heart of God? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. 22, verse 22. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads, the country lanes. Go to the ends of where you can, so that my house will be full. What is the heart of God? Many were invited. Go, invite more. There's still room. Go and invite more, so that my banquet, banqueting hall, my house will be full. The heart of God is for heaven to be full. Amen? But 24 is hard to sugarcoat. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. That's hard to, hard to sugarcoat that. Who were those that were first invited? Jesus wouldn't have told this if there wasn't a spiritual lesson for us. Abraham and his children, Isaac, his grandchildren, Israel, descendants of Jacob were the chosen people, the first invited Israel turned to foreign gods. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had such good God habits to keep the law, good intent, good habit, good intent, but bad fruit. They missed and even crucified the lawgiver. They they were so worried about breaking the law that they killed the one who came to fulfill the law. The Jewish nation was invited first. The religious leaders and many people declined Jesus' invitation. So God, the master of the feast, extended his family, his sons and daughters, expanded his family to, beyond the children of Israel, the chosen ones, to include all. Not just the legitimate, but the illegitimate. The sons and daughters, all of us. Jesus was especially drawn to the illegitimate, the fringe, the unpopular the sick, the blind, the lame, and the outcast. He invites them to his feast as well. He invites us to his feast as well. What would that look like today in our life? All right, so I found this story. um, It came to mind from a while ago when I had first seen it. Um, Let's see... There was a a bride-to-be and a groom-to-be, and they had made all of their preparations for their wedding. And they had saved up quite a bit of money, and so they had the ability to do this. They had put $30,000 
towards their banquet, towards the wedding and the feast. And tragically, a week before their wedding, the article didn't say what happened, but said, for undisclosed reasons, the bride and the groom called off the wedding. $30,000 had already been paid and committed. They got $500 back from their photographer. And they were like, what are we going to do? This is such a waste. And they, they couldn't you know, get the money back and they couldn't cancel the event. They could just have no one show up. And so the bride-to-be talked to the groom-to-be, X, I guess, and uh, they had this idea. What if, we, what if we just invited anyone and everyone? What if we invited all the homeless shelters in our area? And so on this special day at the uh, Ritz-Charles, I believe it's called, um, Ritz-Charles in Carmel, Indiana, where they paid $30,000 for their 170 guests, the buses started showing up. And the news came out before this, and it kind of spurred this goodwill throughout the, the community. People were donating dresses and suits and shirts and ties and, so that the homeless could come to this feast. And you can see the joy in the girl's face as she's all dressed up and running to this wedding feast with no wedding. And uh, it was a delight for people. Here's the bride-to-be, would-be bride-to-be, hugging those who came to the feast in sort of her honor. What would it look like for a church to do that today? Well, at first I was thinking, oh, it would, it would be this great big production then I had this realization, well, it would probably look a lot like it does every Sunday right here in the Fellowship Hall where people work together to feed the down and the out, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, so to speak, where hungry people could come and have some fellowship and communion and be fed a warm meal. So yes, this is a shameless plug for service. Every Sunday, especially the third Sundays, I believe, need help from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. right here in the Fellowship Hall every Sunday, especially third Sundays, and I think they could use some help tomorrow because a lot of us will be gone. Why does Jesus keep bringing up the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame? I found this interesting article um, from the Disabled Disabilities Study Quarterly from 2009 in the Kenya Demographic Health Survey. And they had three interesting findings about why um, people with disabilities are still treated as inferior. Uh, Here are their three findings. The three theological themes that have created obstacles for people with disabilities. The first is conflating disability with sin. You know, and throughout the Old Testament, there's different stories of God you know, so-and-so, this nation took the ark, bam! Whoa, what are these growths? What's going on? Give the ark back, okay. Um, even the disciples asked Jesus, right, to the, about the blind man. Was it, was it his sin that caused the blindness, or was it his parents? And Jesus was like, neither, it's for my glory, right? The second theme views disabilities as virtuous suffering, as if this suffering is going to purify the individual. 
And the third theme perceives people with disabilities as a cases, cases of charity. Although charity activity for people with disabilities is at times a means of creating justice, it subverts justice when it segregates people people with disabilities from society and keeps people with disabilities out of the public eye rather than empowering them for full social, economic, and political participation. I thought that was interesting. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. So here's this quote and one more from Timothy Keller. Why does Jesus keep pointing out the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled? I think it's found in these two quotes. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of the gospel or to realize we are worthy of the gospel is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. Does that make sense? Like only until you, we realize our need of the gospel to, can we really receive the gospel. Could it be that being in real need brings us to our knees? I think, I hope most of us have been there. I don't wish the suffering on anyone, but I wish all of us to get to that point where we're broken before God. We're just crying out to Him, God, I need you. God, I need you. Because when we're on our knees, we are truly God-dependent, God-reliant. Real hardship leads to full dependence on God. While affluence, not needing anything, tends to lead us away from dependence on God. Gives us a false doctrine of self-reliance. The second quote from Timothy Keller, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Who Who might Jesus reach out to through you if he walked in your shoes this week? Who annoys you? Who do you avoid? Who do you look down on? We all have at least someone or someones that we do this to. Unintentionally. What if Jesus really wants to use you as a blessing to them this week? Even harder to consider, what if Jesus wants to use them to bless you this week as you minister to them? And maybe they to you. All right, so here we are, section four. Consider the cost, count the cost. Uh, Verses 25, beginning. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? For if he lays the foundation and doesn't finish it, people will ridicule him. 30, saying, this fellow began and was not able to finish. This is a picture of a house in Belize. And so any of you who remember going to Belize last year, you may have seen something like this. And it's like, it's more common than rare to see a home in a quarter, half to three quarters of repair or building stages, and it just remained unfinished. <laughs> or suppose a king, verse 31, 
about to go to war with another king, will not first sit down and consider the cost. If he's not able to outnumber his opponent, his enemy, won't he send a delegation and ask for peace? No, no, don't destroy us. Uh, What can I give you? In the same way, if any of you do not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. How many of us have considered the true cost to be a Christian, to follow Jesus? When you said yes, was it understanding that Jesus really wants all of you? What is the spiritual cost to follow Jesus? He doesn't just want part of our heart. He wants all of it. He wants all of what belongs to us because it really belongs to Him. What are we willing to give to someone to bless them? Those that can't repay us? Not just our belongings, our money, but our time, our heart, our story, what God has done for us? Are we willing to surrender our pride? When He says, I want all of you, I think He includes our pride, our selfishness, our greed. What about socially? Are you willing to lay down your social status to follow Jesus? And lastly, we find that it seems sort of out of place. It seems so out of place. Uh, Verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness. Thank you, Lindia, for the salt and the habit story. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the, what, is that in the Bible? The manure pile? It is thrown out. What I get out of this, two ver- these two verses, is what if God is saying the flavor of the fruit of your spiritual habits? How do people view the fruit of your spiritual life? Are your, our spiritual habits leaving a pleasant taste in people's mouth after we interact with them? Or is it a sour, a bitter taste? I had, had an interaction a little while ago with someone I look up to and <clears throat> have known for years, not in this community, so don't start thinking about who it is. And uh, we were having this event it was um, on a Saturday night. It started 15 to 30 minutes before Sabbath, and so I was going to be a good youth pastor, and I was not going to take the kids into this event um, until after the sun went down. Don't worry. And so I thought, oh, we're there. There's a, a cross on a hill. It'll be a beautiful moment to watch the sunset. We could stand around this cross and thank God for his gift of life to us. And there was someone I, I am friends with who thought that was a bad idea. And he told me for a while on the phone about it. And I said, okay, thank you. He understood my okay, thank you to mean I won't do it. But I just said, okay, thank you for sharing. And uh, so when he found out I was still going to go, and even though we were going to have this sundown worship and then go into this event, um, he was very upset about it. He thought I was harming his 
children or his youth, and which I, was not my intent. And so he had some heated words for me, and I said, okay, thank you. And he says, so that means you're not going to do it, are you? I said, mm, I'll pray about it. And I did. And I felt comfortable having worship and then going to this event. And then a few days later, uh, I was still going to have this event, and I got a call from someone at the conference office. Hey, someone's really upset about what you're doing, and what are you doing? And I told them, oh, well, that doesn't sound too upset, you know, to make too much of an upset situation. And So long story short, I saw this person a few weeks after, and we talked, and it was cordial. And um, I, at the end, I just said, can I just share one thing? I said, can I just share how your Sabbath habit, I probably didn't say habit, but your Sabbath experience, your beliefs of Sabbath felt to me? He said, sure. He said, it felt very manipulative and kind of like stabby in the back kind of a thing your faith came across that way to me. Now, his, it was a very good commitment of his, right? He was committed to the Sabbath, which I am. He's committed to Sabbath observance, which I am. Sabbath keeping, honor God, same, same. But the way I, the taste in my mouth from that experience with him made a huge impact to me to, wow, what, how are my habits leaving a taste in other people's mouth? Is it pleasant? Is it love? Or is it manipulative? Is it like the, the Pharisees at the beginning? How was Jesus? How did Jesus experience their Sabbath habits? Judgment, watching closely, critical, condemning. And so I just close with this. What taste are we leaving in people's mouth? Are we leaving a repulsive, a distaste? Or are we leaving something beautiful? Are we leaving love? Um, for example, uh, we did Love Paradise last weekend, and thank you all that participated. Anita Lee, Karen Pearson, thank you. Can we just thank them? Thank you, everyone that came out. And you might think, oh, well, what's the big deal? You're cutting bushes or planting daffodils or painting something. Well, so what? Why don't we pass out some pamphlets, people? Um, one of the town leaders was speaking to one of our volunteers and um, she shared with me that one of the town leaders was saying, what is it? What is it with you Adventists? Why do you want to serve the community so much? And I just say, thank God. Um, thank God for um, his love through you to the community. And may we continue doing this. Um, let's, let's pray. Creator God, we love you. We praise you. God, search our hearts. And if there's anything in us... Um, any wickedness in us, any evil, any selfishness, greed, pride, anything that should be taken out or changed, God, please do that. God, we invite you into our hearts. Uh, please take out greed and selfishness and pride, God, and please leave love, leave kindness, leave patience. Um, please give us your spirit so that we could love people, love all people, love people more and love people better. God helps to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.